Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, all, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little letter written by Paul to a church that he clearly loved, written from a Roman prison as he awaits what will eventually become his death. Father, to, to hear these words from this man um, whom you used to plant this little church um, just 10 years before this letter was written, um, as we hear him and his heart for these people, would you help us to hear you and your heart for us? As we're just about 10 years old, almost. And we need you, Father, to send your spirit um, to help us to understand and be changed by this word that you preserve for us. So we ask that you would do it um, to the glory and praise of Jesus, our crucified King and living Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, happy birthday, Mountain Fellowship. Friday was our birthday, our ninth birthday. Uh, we were born at, I believe, an afternoon worship service on September 11th, 2011. Um, how many of you are here at that worship service? Look at that. Bunch of you. You know, somebody pointed out that all of our current elders were, and their families were 
founding members of Mountain Fellowship, uh, and and more of you than just them. But uh, that's kind of remarkable, really, uh, that those families stuck with us <laughs> for nine years. And it's been it's been an interesting nine years, hasn't it? I also learned this week that. Um, those who gathered to plant this little congregation on Signal Mountain chose 9-11 intentionally as the day to start worship. Um, so that on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attack, um, they wanted to make a statement that in a world that longs for renewal, this church wanted to be a fellowship of Jesus-shaped people on this mountain who would share in God's deep gladness in the renew of all things. That's pretty cool. So in a world that was bent out of shape, Mountain Fellowship wanted to be a Jesus-shaped church. And it's still true today. That's who Mountain Fellowship wants to be. Um, and so I want to use this first message in our Philippians series to kind of remind us of that vision and to cast a, again the vision of what God has called us to be as a fellowship. Here are some thoughts I wrote down. In a bad news world, God is calling Mountain Fellowship to be a good news church. In a divisive, angry world, God is calling Mountain Fellowship to be a united, joy-filled, joy-filled church. In a world of fear, God is calling Mountain Fellowship to be faithful. In a me-first world, God is calling Mountain Fellowship to be a people who look out not only for their own interests, but for the interests of others, as Paul says in chapter 2. I think we can sum all that vision up in what Paul says again in chapter 2 when he says that in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, God is calling his church to be blameless and innocent children of God who shine as lights in the world. So with all the craziness that's going on, with all the angst and the tension and the anger uh, that's going on in our world right now, what do we do? <laughs> who, who are we to be? And I think Philippians is a perfect, um, a perfect place to look um, because we may not be able to fix all that's going on out, out there, but we can be a certain kind of people in the middle of this twisted and crooked generation. And that will happen as God continues to do the good work of making us a Jesus-shaped church. And so in these first 11 verses, Paul is going to show us that a Jesus-shaped church is planted by the power of the preaching of the gospel. A Jesus-shaped church practices its partnership in the gospel. And a Jesus-shaped church prays for the priorities of gospel growth. 
a Jesus-shaped church is a gospel-shaped church. And so I'm not, I don't want to assume that we all know what gospel means or what the New Testament means by gospel. So let me tell us again so that we're all on the same page. Gospel literally means, the word means good news. And as we discovered in our time in Mark this past year, The gospel is the good news that Jesus is the son of God who came to be the king of a new creation and a new humanity. And he did that by living the life that we all should have lived, by receiving the condemnation that belonged to us, by paying the penalty of death that we all owed, and he didn't. And then by rising from the grave to new life, a new life which he would offer freely to all who would answer his call to follow him. Who would answer his call to follow him as their their crucified Lord and their risen king. And it was this good news about Jesus that Paul proclaimed in Philippi in Acts 16. And if you haven't read Acts 16 yet, I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon, go back. It's, it's the story of how the church of Philippi came to be. So God came to Philippi and through the mouth of Paul, he proclaimed Jesus. God opened the heart of a businesswoman named Lydia and she paid attention to what Paul was saying about Jesus. And she loved that story about Jesus. She She began to learn it and decided, I'm going to live in this story about Jesus. And she became the first member of the church at Philippi. Paul and Silas were arrested and beaten with rods for proclaiming this good news about Jesus. The Romans threw them in jail. And as they sat in chains in jail, they prayed to this crucified king and living Lord They sang songs to him and about him. And you know the jailer had to be listening to this. (laughs) And you know Paul, he can't help but talk about Jesus to whoever he's chained to. And that night, God caused an earthquake to shake the foundations of the prison. It unshackled Paul and Silas and the other prisoners. And it shook the jailer to his core. And he ran up to Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so he took them home, and he washed their wounds, and he fed them dinner, and and he asked them, Tell my family. So they proclaimed Jesus to the whole household, and they were all baptized as believers in Jesus. That's the start of this little church that Paul is writing to. It was the power of the good news about Jesus that Paul preached that transformed Lydia and the jailer and all those others into a new community of people in Philippi whose hearts were going to be shaped by Jesus into the shape of Jesus. So the first thing we need to remember as we begin is is that Paul is writing a letter to a church like ours, a church that was about 10 years old, close to it, that had been planted by the power of the preaching of the gospel. 
verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, that's the elders, and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter was written by a man named Paul, who himself was transformed by the gospel. Who did he hear the gospel from? He heard it from Jesus himself. When Jesus blinded him with his glory on the road to Damascus, when Paul was on his way to Damascus to put Christians, followers of Jesus, in prison, breathing out threats against them because they followed Jesus as their Messiah King. That Paul, that Paul is writing this letter. And so I, I read this, I'm asking, how is it that that Paul who hated Jesus and those who followed Jesus now calls himself a servant or a slave of Jesus? That's the power of the gospel. And how is it that these Roman citizens from all walks of life turned away from their pantheon of Roman and some Greek gods and goddesses and, and could now be called saints or holy ones or set-apart ones? How could they now be set apart as Jesus' people? Only the power of the gospel does that. And how is it that after 10 years, there were so many who followed this Jesus in Philippi that the church had to organize itself so that they then had elders and deacons and a congregation, maybe like ours. Only the power of the gospel can do that. And what does Paul mean when he says that these people are in Christ Jesus? That's Paul's favorite description of Christians in all his letters, in Christ What, what does that mean? Remember when Paul was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to him, why do you persecute me? Now, Paul must have been thinking, I'm not persecuting you. I'm after these people who follow you down in Damascus. But Jesus said, why do you persecute me? And a lot of scholars believe that that, that interchange between Jesus and Paul so impressed Paul that Jesus would say, if you persecute them, you persecute me. That um, Paul began to understand that followers of Jesus are in fellowship with Jesus. Believers in Jesus are bonded to Jesus in a way. They're united to him. They're in partnership with him. Only the power of the gospel can so transform any man, woman, boy, or girl into someone who believes their core identity is that I am in Christ Jesus. That's what's happened to these people. My question for you this morning is, has it happened to you? Has God so opened your heart like he did Lydia's to pay attention to the good news about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that you are trusting him as the one who lived and died and rose again in your place? 
Do you love the story of Jesus? Do you long to learn it and to live in it? Has that transformation happened in you? Like it did in Paul, like it did in Lydia, like it did in the jailer and all those saints in Philippi. Have you come to the place where you have said and you say, I believe the good news about Jesus is true, it's good, it's beautiful, and I will now follow him as my crucified king, as my living Lord, and I will learn to let my story be swallowed up in his story. If you've never had that kind of conversation with Jesus, then I, I beg you, I beg you, do it today. And if you need help figuring out, well, what does that mean for me to have that kind of exchange with Jesus, come talk to me. Talk to anyone here. Um, email me and we'll get coffee. I want to tell you how, how that happens. So Jesus-shaped church is planted by the power of the preaching of the gospel. But what happens when that plant begins to grow, like Mountain Fellowship did 10 years ago, nine years ago? As that plant begins to grow, it begins to practice partnership in the gospel. And that's where Paul goes in the next part of this letter. Um, he says in verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is, um, it's where we get our names. Fellowship is what that means. And, and it's not, you know, some people think fellowship is, okay, if I have coffee and talk about football with a non-Christian person, that's just having a, a chat with my friend. But if I do the same thing with a Christian, that's fellowship. Not exactly. Fellowship is a deep sharing of life together around Christ. Because if we are in union with Jesus, then we are also in union with one another. So this is what Paul is, is leading us to now. It's, it's a partnership in the gospel. D.A. Carson says this about this passage. He, he tells us, put your partnership in the gospel at the center of your relationships with believers. Put your partnership in the gospel at the center with, of your relationships with other believers. So think of the differences between those first three converts in Acts chapter three, in, I mean, 16 in Philippi. They came from different races, genders, socioeconomic classes, religious backgrounds. There was Lydia, the six, successful businesswoman, there was the demonic slave girl that Paul exercised the demon out of her, and then she was most likely poor and homeless after that. She was out of work. And then there's this jailer who's probably an ex-military blue-collar guy uh, serving as security for this jail. How did, how did those kind of people all come together to form a partnership in the gospel. Carson goes on to say this. This is very helpful to me. He says, what must tie us together as Christians 
is this passion for the gospel, this fellowship in the gospel. On the face of it, he says, nothing else is strong enough to hold together the extraordinary diversity of people who constitute many churches. Men and women, young and old, blue collar and white, healthy and ill, fit and flabby, different races, different incomes, different levels of education, different personalities, I would add different political persuasions. I mean, think of Mountain Fellowship. We, we may look a lot the same on the outside, but we are quite diverse in other ways. Carson says, what holds us together? It is the gospel, the good news that in Jesus, God himself has reconciled us to himself. This brings about a precious God-centeredness that we share with one another. And so my question is, in the coming days and months and years and generations, will this kind of partnership continue to describe Mountain Fellowship? He began that good work in us. He will continue it. Are we going to participate in that work with him? And how will we know that we are putting our partnership in the gospel at the center of our relationships with each other in this church? What will that look like? Well, Paul goes on to use himself as an example of what it will look like by modeling the attitude and the affections and the actions that people who are in partnership in the gospel have. Let's look at it in the, in the following verses. And remember that biblically, uh, we tend to separate the head and the heart, um, but bib- the Bible doesn't do that. It, it mixes it all up. The, uh, our um, attitudes and our affections are, are mixed together, and you can see how Paul does this, and, and our actions flow out of the center of who we are. So when the Bible talks about the heart, It talks about the center of who the person is. And so listen listen as Paul describes this. First in verse 3, first of all, he he thinks about them. Look at what he says in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. I know this seems rather obvious, but he thinks about them. How often do we think about each other? Particularly these days when we're not able to be together a whole lot. Are we, are we thinking about each other? And then what happens in you when you think of other people in the Mountain Fellowship family? I'm sure that when you think of some, your heart is warmed. When you think of others, you may have anxiety. I don't know, what happens in you? Well, what happened in Paul when he thinks, when he thought about the Philippians? Verse three, he has gratitude for the gift they are to him. He says, I thank my God for you. Paul gives thanks to God for these people. It's not just being grateful for them. He actually verbally thanks God for them because he thinks of them as having been given to him as a gift from God. And so I ask us, look around. Do you verbally thank God for these people? All of them. (laughs) What else happens in Paul when he thinks of them? 
here, that was, gratitude was an attitude. Now here's affection. Joy overflows in Paul when he prays for these people. Verse four, he says, I'm, I'm making my prayer with joy. They give him great joy. Do the people of Mountain Fellowship give you great joy? Some, yes. But if we have a partnership in the gospel, shouldn't there be some level of joy that we share in each other? That's an affection. Now he goes back to an attitude. The, the next attitude in verse six is that Paul is confident in God's sovereign work in these people. I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He knows that God is in charge of their story. And his confidence is in God, not them. His confidence is in God, that God will continue to write their story until it's complete. And he also thinks of them in the big picture of what God is doing because he, he talks about until the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. He's taking the long view for this church. He's not despairing over their current issues, which he will address in this letter, but he's looking at them in the light of where they're going. He's connecting the smaller story of their little church with the larger story of what God is doing in all places and all time. My question for me as your pastor and for us is, do we have that kind of confidence in what God is doing in our church? Do we, are we taking the long view? Or are we getting bogged down and despairing about the details of current issues? Or are we taking the long view and saying, God is doing something in us that he began 10 years ago and he's still doing it and he's gonna keep doing it even when we're long gone. So he has that attitude of confidence in God's sovereign work in them. And then he, he spills over in verse seven with more affection. These people are in his heart. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. <laughs> you know what that's like when you think of your children. You hold them in your heart. You know what that means. This is how Paul feels about these people. Do we feel this way about one another? Do we hold each other in our hearts? And then here's, here's the action in verse seven. He goes on, he says, for you are all partakers. And, and this, is a, this word literally means you're all fellow fellowshippers. <laughs> you're all partnered partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul and the people suffer and serve together for the sake of the gospel. This is the action that flows out of all that attitude and affection. They partner with God by acting to supply his physical and financial needs and praying for him while he is in prison, acting to defend and confirm the gospel. And we'll talk more about that next week. But, but they're in partnership. It, their partnership has some actions to it. We'll talk about those next Sunday. And then he, then he finishes with this more affection. He has not only, he, he not, not only holds them in his heart, he has the heart of Jesus for them. Verse eight, just ponder what he says here. For God is my witness, 
how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you. I, I long for you. I have a great love for you. And with affection, this is a word that's used over and over and over again in the New Testament. It's used over and over and over again, especially to describe the heart of Jesus for sinners and broken people. It literally means your innards, <laughs> your guts. Um, sometimes it's translated compassion. I yearn for you all with the affection, the compassion of Christ Jesus. It's the same word that Matthew used when he said that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had affection for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. And this is the affection that Paul had for the people at Philippi. He knew that without Jesus, they were helpless and they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. They, he knew that they were great sinners who needed a great savior, as John Newton was famous to say. But here's my question. How did a man, this man, Paul, who hated non-Jews, he hated Gentiles, and he also hated Jewish Christians who followed Jesus, how did that man come to have the affection of Jesus for non-Jews and Jewish Christians. How, do, how is he transformed? It's because his heart was shaped by Jesus into the shape of Jesus' heart. Paul understood that he, he was a man who knew what it was like to be a great sinner loved by a great Savior. And so now he's joining Jesus in Jesus' love for these people. Friends, will we in the days to come, regardless of what comes up, regardless of what our different viewpoints on how to do things uh, falls between us, will we have the affection of Christ Jesus for one another? Because that's what this world needs to see. Our culture needs to see a group of people who are very different and have very different opinions about a lot of things, having the affection of Jesus for one another. That's, that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that they might be one even as we are one, Father, so that the world would look at them and believe that you've sent me. Because the world would say, how is this possible? It's possible because a man died on a cross and rose from the grave. That's happened. And then the natural or supernatural outflow of this partnership in the gospel is that we all would pray for more and more abundant partnership, more and more abundant love for one another. And so that's where Paul goes for the rest of these verses. And here's, here's what I want to do. Um, rather than preach verses 9 through 11 for, to you, I want to pray them for you. So I'm going to pray using these verses as my prayer. 
Um, I wrote this prayer for you yesterday, and then I'll tell you a story and we'll be, we'll be done. We'll go to the table together. <clears throat> because a church that is in partnership in the gospel prays for gospel priorities. Notice what Paul prays for them here. We must let our prayers be shaped by this prayer. Father, I pray that Mountain Fellowship's love may abound more and more, that our congregation may overflow with abundant love for you and for one another, that our love would go beyond even our own expectations. And I pray that it would be a love that is shaped with knowledge and all discernment, that we would, like Paul says in chapter three, long to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Father, shape in us a love that looks like Jesus' love, one that knows the power of the risen Jesus living in us, a love that can discern how valuable it is to suffer for the sake of others, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus down into humility, even when it feels like it's going to kill us. Father, deepen this growing intimate knowledge of the dying and rising shape of Jesus' love in our church so that we may approve what is excellent. Father, there's so many good ways to serve and love, but we can't do them all. Help us to see and approve together the excellent ways that you have prepared for us, the unique ways that you have called and equipped Mountain Fellowship to love our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. Father, do all of this in us so that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Help us to keep our focus on the day when Jesus will return and we will be presented to him as his bride. That at the end of the age, Jesus will be the one to determine not whether we have succeeded, but whether we have been shaped into a people who share his pure and blameless life and love not a people who simply look good in this cultural moment, but who generation after generation will faithfully love God and people until the day that Jesus comes. Because those of us who are here this morning may not be the mountain fellowship that lives to see the day of Christ. And so may you make us faithful now in this generation to disciple the children and grandchildren of this church to be shaped by Jesus into the shape of Jesus so that they may do the same for the children that, give, that God gives them. Help us to believe that what we do now in this generation of Mountain Fellowship, Mountain Fellowship matters for who Mountain Fellowship will be on the day that Jesus returns. And so, Father, even now we pray that each man, woman, boy, and girl in our fellowship would be filled with the fruit of of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Oh God, let the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us is doing in us and for us and will do in us and for us. Let that gospel grow us. And I'm not talking about numbers. That's, that's up to you. We want gospel growth more than we want numerical or financial growth. I mean, cancer cells grow, but that's not good. That's not what we want. That's not the kind of growth we want. 
We want our lives and our households and our fellowship as a church to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, not self-righteousness, but the righteousness we have been given in Christ. And we know from your word that righteousness is relational. It's about a right relationship and partnership with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's about a right relationship and partnership with your people, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We know from Galatians 5 that the fruit of righteousness is the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus. Righteousness looks like Jesus with skin on. And so fill us, Father, with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. All of these things that look like Jesus make us look like those. Those are so different. Those are different ways of relating to one another than what the world does, especially how we're doing it today. And God, help us to remember always that this fruit comes through Jesus. Keep us ever in fellowship with him, our eyes on him, our hope in him, our hearts in him, our hearts in moment-by-moment communion and communication with him. And finally, Father, above all else, we pray that you would make Mountain Fellowship a people who live in love in all these ways to the glory and praise of God. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Protect us from ever becoming impressed with ourselves or with our own progress. Keep us from seeking a reputation for ourselves. Guard us from pride in what we have or what we do or what others think we are. Help us to preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as slaves for his sake. Oh, Father, may you get all the glory and praise for the good work you've begun and the good work you will complete in us to make us a fellowship who shares in your deep gladness in renewing all things beginning with us. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. I want to leave you with a parable. A parable about a country pastor who visited a farmer who was wearing his bib overalls. The farmer and his family had the pastor over for breakfast. And the farmer said, Pastor, let me do the honors. I'll, I'll, I'll say grace. So the farmer prayed, Lord, I hate buttermilk. The pastor kind of looked up. That was odd. The farmer continued loudly, Lord, I hate lard. The pastor was growing concerned. The farmer said, and Lord, you know I don't much care for raw white flour. Pastor's thinking, what? And the farmer then said, and Lord, I hate how the oven makes the house get hot. I'm in the heat all day. I don't want to be hot in the house. At this, the pastor just rolled his eyes. And then the farmer concluded, but Lord, 
when you mix all them things all together and bake them in the fiery hot oven, Lord, I sure do love warm, fresh biscuits, and I thank you for them. Amen. Jesus, the great baker, has gathered all of these ingredients and the ingredients that are at home. And he's put them all in this great big bowl he calls Mountain Fellowship. And with his great love and the strength of his spirit, he's stirring those ingredients together. And each of those ingredients will change as they come together. And each of them will begin to contribute something new. And they will begin to form a partnership that will become something that the baker has planned to give away to others. But in order for that partnership to be perfected, they're going to have to bask in the warmth of the love of the baker, even if it means they've got to bake in the fellowship of his sufferings. Look around you, Mountain Fellowship. Jesus has put us in partnership together by the message of the gospel for the ministry of the gospel on this mountain so that he can give us to a Jesus-starved world who need to taste and see that he is good. Father, would you do that in us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.